0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wadundjeri and this is The Full Story. In Australia, about a 1,000 people die of superbug infections every year. These are diseases which can't be cured with antibiotics or other antimicrobial medications. And the World Health Organization has warned that antimicrobial resistance could be responsible for 10 million deaths a year by 2050.
2: Working together is the only way to avoid the huge human, social, economic and environmental costs of antimicrobial resistance.
1: So why are dangerous superbugs on the rise? And what can be done to prevent them from spreading? Today, a live full-story discussion from the South by Southwest Festival in Sydney. It's Monday, the 23rd of October.
3: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
1: We're here to talk about how big this problem is and what scientists, clinicians, governments and we can do to stop it getting any bigger. Thankfully, there are some experts around the world taking the war against superbugs and the problem of antimicrobial resistance very seriously right now. We have three of them on stage with us tonight, today. (laughs) John Iadell is a physician and microbiologist at Westmead Hospital and Gary Myers is a professor of microbiology at the University of Technology Sydney and Natasha May, my colleague, is Guardian Australia's health reporter. Please make my guests very welcome. (laughs) So let's start just getting to know our guests a little bit. Natasha, as a health reporter, what fascinates you the most about superbugs? Well,
4: if anyone has ever had a urinary tract infection or knows anyone who's had a urinary tract infection, the idea of not being able to treat it is quite frankly terrifying. And I think it's quite easy to take for granted that we live in this age where illnesses like tuberculosis and UTIs have cures. George Orwell was only 46 years of age. The poet John Keats was only 25 years of age, died of tuberculosis. It seems like that could never happen today. but if there was a superbug outbreak, we'd be facing the prospect of going back into the dark ages of health and this really altering our life expectancy. Well, Jonathan, you're
1: on the front line treating people with superbugs every day. So what does that look like day to day?
5: Well, I guess it's fair to say we've been completely dependent on antibiotics um, for modern healthcare, all of our transplant. Therapy, critical care—you know—if you, know, you get—if you get hit by a car and end up in an intensive care unit, you're going to need an antibiotic. So it's completely transformed medicine. Um, not long ago, we had a visitor from a colleague in, in Delhi who ran a looked after leukemia patients, and he made the point that cancer therapy, which we now is, know is so good for leukaemia, was less of a risk to his patients now than resistant infection. He said his patients were more likely to die from antibiotic-resistant infection than of the leukaemia they came in to have treated. So it's a frightening prospect right on our
1: shores. Hmm, terrifying. I mean, Gary, what are you most worried about in this space? You've been in this space for a while as well.
2: Um, I spent a lot of time in my career researching chlamydia which is well known in human populations but uh, it's a major pathogen in animals as well and now there is an amr resistant chlamydia circulating in pigs because tetracycline is being used as a growth promoter Um, so the sheer tons of antibiotic used to amplify the growth of these pigs has managed to get through all the barriers that a intracellular organism like chlamydia has so just to that selective pressure that's out there is substantive.
1: And Gary, can you please explain for us how at a basic level microbes become resistant to antimicrobials or how AMR actually happens?
2: I mean, AMR is very natural. So bacteria in the soil secrete various compounds designed to keep other bacteria that aren't them away from them. And so these bacteria then involve strategies to counter that. So it's an, uh, a bacterial arms race. And bacteria don't care where they grow, so whether or not it's in the soil or whether or not it's in a wound, whether or not it's in your gut. uh, The usage of antibiotics just provides a selective pressure uh, whereby uh, you wipe out 99.9% of a trillion bacteria that don't have resistance, but the other remaining small percentage now have the advantage to grow up and grow out.
1: Right. They're just doing what they're supposed to do, which is try yeah. to survive.
2: And a great deal of that is mediated by what we call horizontal transfer, for want of a better word, bacterial sex. It's bacteria exchanging genetic information. So we, we did some genome sequencing of E. coli being born by uh, Sydney seagulls. Um, so if you think of it like Russian nesting dolls, they they basically embed within each other. And we saw some of the most complicated mobile genetic element structures with huge numbers of antibiotic resistance elements and resistance genes within that, um, within a Sydney seagull. And that's because these are generalist feeders that can fly to all kinds of locations, steal your chips, go to a sewage farm. It's a similar kind of thing what's going on with AMR. You end up with animals such as seagulls, generalist feeders in the environment as well as pigs and cattle who will accumulate this uh, and then transfer that to people.
1: So, Natasha, can you paint a picture first? How... Worried should we be about superbugs right now? What are the global health bodies saying?
4: Well, the UN has predicted that without urgent intervention, drug-resistant microbes would result in 10 million deaths each year globally by 2050. And authorities here at home are also sounding the alarm. This isn't just some hypothetical future problem, but is already causing some serious issues. So in recent years, there have been more reports of bacterial infections that can't be treated by routine antibiotics. So for example, doctors are already seeing UTIs that are resistant to most first-line antibiotics. And we know that globally, antibiotic-resistant infections are already killing 700,000 people each year. Wow.
1: So the race is really on to get on top of this as soon as possible um, before things get much worse. Jonathan, what are some of the things, the driving factors that are pushing the rise of superbugs at the moment in the environment?
5: Well, I think Gary's made a really important point. This is an ecological question, really. I mean, The bugs don't care much where they live. They all have special places they like to live and some of them are more adapted to live with us, but they're usually a bit flexible and they can usually talk to their mates who live somewhere else. So there's opportunity to learn from each other inside an ecosystem that is responding to essentially intoxication of the planet. It's not just antimicrobials, it's heavy metals and all the other things we're filling our fish and our soils and our rivers with. Um, And so it's this constant ecosystem pressure in a perfectly adaptable uh, system, which is bacteria. I mean, they were arguably the first successful life forms, still the most ubiquitous and diverse, and, um, you know, more of them in us than our own cells. So it would be unsurprising that they would adapt to these kind of pressures. I mean, in many ways, a perfect adaptation would see every bacteria on Earth resistant to every antibiotic and every heavy metal on Earth. I don't think that's going to happen because we're making big efforts to try and contain that, but that would be the natural course of things.
1: What are the most common superbugs in Australia right now?
2: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give a quick answer and John can jump in more on a, from a clinical perspective, but the ones that we worry about are called the escape pathogens. Um, that's E-S-K-A-P-E, and Enterococcus, Streptococcus, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, and E. coli. Um, and these are the ones that are most adapted to us and they're the ones that can cause significant disease in and of themselves and when they're antimicrobial resistance, that disease can't be treated effectively.
5: One thing to remember is that the ecosystem here in our hospitals is different than it is in other environments. So, for example, if you are in an environment where it is easy to maintain people individually so they don't spread infection from one person to another, then things that are well adapted to live in a hospital or live in a sink in an intensive care, which are different kind of bugs to the ones that normally live inside you, become the problem pathogens. Whereas the ones that we see commonly now are the ones that live in us but have breached our defences. So, for example, if you have a terrible problem with a car accident or some internal organ fails or something, then that organ, if it contains bacteria like the gut, for example, leaches them into your system. And if if they are resistant to antibiotics, then they're harder to deal with.
1: Next, how we're fighting the war against superbugs. Well, let's turn to all the ways that we're currently fighting the war against superbugs. (laughs) Jonathan, as we mentioned, you're at the Coalface treating people in hospitals with limited time available. One of the treatments you work on is called VARGE therapy. Can you explain how that works?
5: Yeah, so... If you think about trying to manage a system such as, you know, bacterial infection, one of the things you might look to in nature's natural mechanisms of control. So out in nature where bacteria and viruses are not particularly interested in humans, they get on with their own business that they've been getting on with for billions of years. There's been this to and fro between the predators of bacteria these little viruses that eat bacteria, the bacteriophages, as you referred to, and the bacterial populations that they control to some extent in nature. So if you're able to harness that natural capacity by selecting the very specific things that eat the bacteria that's causing the grief in your patient, then you can use it as a therapy.
1: Mm. And just to give us a sense of what... Uh, what phage therapy looks like in practice. Can you tell us the story of how you helped a little girl named Daphne with phage therapy? Yeah,
5: Daphne. Yeah, Dunvee, so Danvi um, is a Sydney girl. She went overseas to visit her parents, got knocked down by a car. Terrible story. Ended up in a hospital overseas where antibiotic resistance is a big problem. Um, the infection in her leg became such a problem she was spending a long time in hospital back in Australia and was offered an amputation basically to try and deal with runaway infection and to control pain and get it back. And so um, in that setting, the Australian government regards unregistered, unregulated experimental therapies, which is what phage therapy is categorised as, as an option. And in this particular, so we had a fantastic outcome. Mm.
1: And as you mentioned, it's it's limited circumstances in which this is able to be used, right? Mm. So how common is phage therapy in Australia?
5: Oh, look, we, we really have only treated less than three dozen people in Australia, mostly here in Sydney, almost all here in Sydney, in fact. Um, but It is something that people have been using since before antibiotics were developed because it was originally recognised just after the uh, turn of the 20th century and was named then and not until electron microscopes were kind of available in the late 30s did people realise what they were using to kill these bacteria with. So there's this really long history of using it, but it has not really been studied in the way that we would study a modern drug or device. And so there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered about how best to use it. And so it's still in that experimental medicine category, but in some countries it's freely available.
1: You're also involved in research that aims to change the very genes which are resistant to bacteria. Can you explain how that works?
5: So if you're a bug that lives in a competitive environment, let's say you live in the gut and it's always warm and there's always moisture and there's always food and your main job as a bacteria is to deal with the competition from the other bacteria. And so they're all about communication and gene exchange. So if you realise as a bunch of bacteria that you need to be resistant to an antibiotic, you start to pick up those genes and you can pick them up from all sorts of places. And so one of the techniques that is now available, there's a trial now open is to remove the gene itself from the bacterial population so that those populations lose their capacity to be resistant or aggressive and then they can be treated with ordinary antibiotics and we call that plasmid therapy
1: mm. And so that's what stage of research is that at at the moment? That's
5: just really first in human at the moment it is available it's experimental therapy it's available under license now but only only here
1: yeah mm-hmm. Well, Gary, you take a very different approach. You're trying to create a vaccine against drug-resistant bacteria. What could that look like in practice, fully developed?
2: Again, early days. So what we've when you think about vaccines, up until very, very recently, the last few years, vaccines have been really tough to develop, take years. Prior to COVID, the, the record for the fastest vaccine was four years, and that was against mumps. Now we can design an mRNA-based vaccine within Days to weeks, and if you look at the history of vaccines for so the last hundred years or so, it's been about what information, how that information is presented to the immune system, and over time, that information has become more and more focused. So, mRNA vaccines have changed the game, uh, and because that's fast, a five-liter reactor in a uh, production facility can generate a, um, a million doses. And at the moment, we're moving in the middle of moving from single-target vaccines to multi-target vaccines, where you're going to have multiple targets, multiple pathogens, bacteria, viral, fungal, in single shots. So one strategy they developed is antibiotics get inside the bacteria and operate on it and kill it within there. strategy they use is just to pump it out again uh, and get rid of it. We may be able to, and we're exploring ways to look at RNA, not necessarily a vaccine, but RNA therapeutics, where we can block the efflux pump. So what we're essentially doing is resensitizing a class of bacteria to a particular antibiotic which has fallen out of use because of resistance.
1: Right. So flipping, flipping the problem on its head. Yeah. Amazing. So we've talked through a few of the possible treatment options, but Natasha, another way to fight the rise of superbugs is to find new types of antibiotics that can beat them. What are some of the ways that scientists are looking for new antibiotics?
4: Yeah, so a lot of the compounds are found in nature. So uh, penicillin, for example, is made by a fungus. And so as more bacteria become resistant to antibiotics, we need to be finding these new um, new things that we've never used before to be able to beat them. And the hit rate is actually proving uh, quite high in the cold, dark abyss of the deep sea. So scientists at Plymouth University have been searching the North Atlantic where they've found sponges that contain powerful molecules capable of killing superbugs. And these sponges have been described as plant-like animals. Someone said they look like cheese on a stick. And uh, because they can't run away, they need to find ways of protecting themselves. And often they um, it's chemical. And so the scientists are looking at those chemical defenses of the microbes living inside them, collecting specimens, bringing them back to the lab. And the results that they're finding are actually pretty promising. The only big caveat, though, is that the novel antibiotics could easily be wiped out if the ecosystems on the ocean floor were to be destroyed by deep sea mining. Not as good. But another method has been using artificial intelligence. So given the time and money that it takes to develop these new drugs, it'd be impossible to physically test millions of compounds for antibiotic activity. But what researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have been doing is speeding up the early stage of drug discovery. And they found a powerful new antibiotic called Hallison by setting AI loose on vast digital libraries of pharmaceutical compounds. So they first trained deep learning algorithms to identify the sorts of molecules that kill bacteria. And then once the algorithm had learned what molecular features made for good antibiotics, the scientists set to work on a library of compounds under investigation for treating um, various human diseases.
1: Hmm. Gary and John, what do you make of these efforts to find New to focus efforts and funding on finding new antibiotics rather than tackling the problem the way both of you are.
2: Well, I mean, it's important, but as a microbiologist, I'll always put my money on the bacteria. Mm. Mm. I'll second that. Mm.
1: <laughs> Please expand, tell us more. Just. I
2: mean, just the sheer scale of the ability of a bacteria to respond to these sorts of antibiotics. I mean, the fact of the matter is that there hasn't, as you said before, there hasn't been a new class of antibiotics discovered since the late 80s, where we're in an antibiotic desert in terms of discovery at the moment, um, new antibiotics will be welcome. But within a decade, those new antibiotics, there will be resistance. So it's uh, there, it, it, there is going to be a window of opportunity for these new antibiotics, and we have to be a little bit more smarter. And we all, one thing we haven't touched on yet is that there has to be much more done in the space of diagnostics to give clinicians... More time, basically, at the moment. They will use antibiotics possibly inappropriately as prophylaxis until they understand what's coming out and um, surveillance uh, of, of what's what's circulating. We saw with COVID and using the wastewater treatment plants as a, as a summary of what was feeding into that thing from a particular region to get an understanding of what was circulating. Um, those things are happening with AMR as well, but then that needs to then inform policy going up and it may well be that... Um, you can identify hotspots and then have structures in place to respond,
1: mm. uh, so even think-
2: down to the point of being able to say to, sets of GPs in these suburbs and say, hey, you're over-prescribing this.
1: Yeah, because we can see in the wastewater yep. that you might be and we yep. need to do something about that.
2: Yeah, that sort of national, state-level surveillance is, is key. Uh,
1: I was just going to get to mm. stewardship, actually. Jonathan, mm. And as, as Gary mentioned, another way to tackle this is for clinicians, hospitals, everyone to manage better the antibiotics mm. that we currently have. How can we do that?
5: Well, it's a real tough one, actually, because you, you're, you're caught between – the um the need to help the person in front of you in the absence of information. So when you have a situation in which an error could cost a life, then there is a tendency to prescribe aggressively and excessively, potentially, especially when antibiotics are perceived as pretty harmless, you know, because for an individual, they're basically harmless. It's the rest of the planet that suffers downstream, you know. So there's always that pressure to prescribe and not make a mistake up front. And on the, and on the flip side of that coin, there is just asking for moderation to save our antibiotic formularies for later. And it's a, very, it's a very difficult tension. It's present in all the hospitals.
1: I mean, we've touched on how we can beat drug-resistant bacteria once it's inside us, but we can also try and stop the spread of bacteria in key environments. Natasha, what are some of the tools being developed to do that?
4: So there are a number of different emerging technologies which could offer different approaches. Um, They include surface sprays that change color when they come into contact with dangerous pathogens, Uh, neutralizing technologies built into our sewage system which can detect and disarm harmful microbes before they're flushed into our waterways. And um, this one's my personal favorite, toothbrushes that provide data on our oral health and which self-sterilize after use. Hmm. That's
1: handy, actually. (laughs) Um, And Jonathan, as we learned with COVID, the global community has to band together to stop the global spread of infectious diseases. So is antimicrobial resistance being taken seriously enough, not just in Australia, but in the world?
5: There is certainly the case that the WHO have stepped up with their GLASS program. I can't remember the acronym, but um, essentially a global surveillance program of antimicrobial resistance. And Australia has actually been pretty good. We've had Um, a national surveillance program running for 35 years, which I believe is the longest continuously running antimicrobial resistance surveillance program in the world. And we've run a good stewardship program, so we have a good understanding of how people prescribe, particularly in hospitals and the community. But I think Yes, we are having increasing global awareness. Um, I think the idea of this this kind of uh, response to these problems is expensive and so it's it's something we need to support our, our neighbours who have got less um, well-endowed health systems to, to deal with. I think there's
2: a lot of work to do still.
1: Mm. Yeah. You also mentioned um, a federal CDC that's on its way. Yeah.
2: The U.S. has had a CDC for, for many decades. It's been quite effective um, oversight, both not just in the U.S, but also globally as well. Um, and Australia hasn't. We've mostly devolved down to individual health departments in states and states and environment and prime industries. But they are, there has been a, the new federal government has I think there's like 90 million dollars set aside to establish a, a federal CDC um, with oversight powers. That will go a long way. In the same way that CSIRO has evolved into this national organisation with a national footprint, um, you need to be able to zoom out of the individual states.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Natasha, what is it that us individuals could do, if anything, to make a difference to this problem?
4: as jonathan mentioned obviously there's the um for doctors not over prescribing but for patients um uh when we receive antibiotics we should be taking the full course even if we feel better um so not leaving any leftover antibiotics and um uh even and not sharing antibiotics with others awesome
1: well thank you so much to our guests can i get get a big hand for our three guests amazing Today, you heard from Gary Myers. He's a professor of microbiology and a director of the Australian Institute for Microbiology and Infection at the University of Technology, Sydney. You also heard from Jonathan Iyadal. He's a physician and microbiologist at Westmead Hospital and professor at the University of Sydney, and Natasha May, a health reporter at Guardian Australia. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Melanie Chun, Miles Martinioni, and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design, mixing and composed our theme music. The executive producer was... Was Hannah Parks. Special thanks to Guardian Australia science reporter Donna Liu for her help in putting this panel discussion together. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.